Hey, Andrew here. Just wanted to let you know that Global Sport Matters will be doing a GSM live this Friday, June 19th at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, talking about the future of sport using a thing called threat casting. Brian David Johnson, futurist in residence, here at ASU, is using data and methodology to better predict and prepare for the future. That's live this Friday, June 19th, 2020 at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. Be sure to sign up and register at globalsportmatters.com. And now, the show. History is repeating itself through athlete activism. 50 years after John Carlos and Tommy Smith raised their fists during the national anthem at the Mexico City Olympics, athlete activism has once again become one of the most relevant and controversial political topics in the U.S., despite the fact that we haven't had a public sporting event since the start of the pandemic. We talked to Olympic athlete Gwen Berry and former head coach for the University of Washington women's soccer, Leslie Gallimore. From the Global Sport Institute and Global Sport Matters at ASU, I'm Andrew Ramsamy, and you're in the huddle. Gwen Berry was a 2016 Olympian at the Rio Olympics, is an indoor world record holder, and will be an Olympic qualifier for the Tokyo Olympics in 2021. She was sanctioned for raising her fist on the winner's podium during the Pan Am Games last summer, in light of the statements that both the international and U.S. Olympic committees have issued denouncing racism, she's calling out their hypocrisy. Gwen, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. So, so we were just talking. You're in Houston. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming you were in Houston while the funeral of George Floyd was going on. Um, yeah. how, how are you feeling? Um, these days, I'm still a little kind of sad, you know, overwhelmed a little bit. Um, and just like heartbroken, you know, after the George Floyd situation, you know, it's been a lot more situations that have come about. Um, you know, two females have, you know, been Brianna Taylor. And then you have another woman who recently, um, I think a couple, just a couple of days ago went missing. Um, she was found dead. And, um, you know, there's hangings of black men everywhere. Um, you know, it's just a, it's just a hard time right now for America, I think. So, Gwen, we're, we're talking because last year uh, you were sanctioned by the uh, International Olympic Committee mm-hmm. for raising your fist on the right. winner's podium. Um, and, and now you're kind of calling out the kind of hypocrisy of the IOC. Um, yes. Tell me about that that moment when you were when you were on the podium and, and you raised, you know, you, you bowed your head and you raised your fist. Did, did you know what you, what you were doing in that moment? I feel like I definitely knew what I was doing in that moment. I didn't know that it would be as big as it um, turned out. Um, to me, that was just me um, just expressing where I, how I felt um, that, you know, I stand for black people, black power. Um, I stand for us sticking together and making a way out of no way and still achieving great feats when all eyes are stacked against us. I stand for black unity. I stand for black love. And I feel like on that podium, I just wanted to express that, that even though a lot of people don't want to see us anywhere in the world, us being successful, that um, in that moment, I had did that for people that look like me and people who are oppressed like me. So what was it like when you got that letter uh, saying that you were sanctioned and you were and you were not the only one who was sanctioned uh, at the, the, that event? There was also someone else, too, who had uh, kneeled. Right. Um, but what what is a sanction? 
Or so what is a probation, right? I think you have a probation. Yeah, I have a probation. So basically what a probation uh, does is it doesn't allow you to speak of any type of, um, I wouldn't say situation, but, you know, any type of political um, content on a podium, a medal stand or in any type of um, field of play. And this is tied to this uh, what's called Rule 50, right, that athletes are prohibited by the Olympic Charter's Rule 50 from taking a political stand in the field of play, like the race fist that we saw from American sprinters Tommy Smith and John Carlos in 68. So this is not the this is not the first time that we've seen this, but obviously this is now all preceded where, where we're at in this moment, you know, America effectively after George Floyd. Um, did you know about this Rule 50? Did you know that effectively, you know, you had signed an agreement saying that you would not do something like this? Yes, I feel like um, for us, it's, we have no choice, honestly. So you got to think about it like this. If we train eight or four to eight years or more to make an Olympic team, and then you go into team processing and they give you this contract and they say, this is the most important rule right here. This rule right here is the most important because it, quote unquote, takes politics and sports and keeps them separate. So even though you have these feelings, even though you think about these things and these things are dear to you, um, they're embedded in you. You honestly have no choice but to sign or else basically all the hard work that you've done to get to this point to making any Olympic team, it, it's, it was all for nothing. So I do know that I signed the contract, um, even though I don't agree with the contract at all, obviously. <laughs> um, I know I signed the contract, but to me, I didn't think that I did anything disrespectful only because, I mean, you can't disrespect the flag that doesn't respect you or people who look like you. And because I, I mean, I didn't do it the whole anthem, you know, I waited to the end. Um, you know, so I feel like in that moment, I didn't break a rule because I was peaceful. Now, had it been a different situation, had I been belligerent or obnoxious, I can understand. But all I did was put up a peace sign, basically. Just like a just like an army salute. Same thing. Do you believe that the statement is political when I know that your motivations are more about the social messaging that you're trying to say? But do you think it is a political statement? It's only political because um, of how politics have um, basically suppressed the black community in America and have made it hard for black people in America to do anything in terms of uh honestly, growth, just racial, racial growth. So that's the only reason why it would be political. So Sarah Hirschland, the CEO of the U.S. Olympic Committee, U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, issued a statement saying that um, today I'm creating an athlete led group to challenge the rules and systems of our organization that create barriers to progress, including your right to protest. All Team USA athletes who are interested in participating are welcomed. Um, I know since that statement's been issued, you've had a conversation with Sarah Hirschland. And, and what was that conversation like? Um, that conversation was really tough. I feel like it was her explaining to me how she had to do her job, um, how she's in a position to enforce rules that are broken, and how she did not understand how sports and the black culture coincide and how um her not supporting me in my stance uh, affected my life she didn't understand that so therefore i had to go in and tell her 
exactly how it feels to be a black woman with a black child and black family members who are men in America. Because I feel like anytime you are the CEO of, of any organization, when um, majority of your athletes are black, for you to not know these things, um, I feel like it's disingenuous and it's just ignorant to reality. I feel like anybody that knows anything about the Olympic Games knows of John Carlos and Tommy Smith and their plight and their fight with the IOC and their lives. You know, they had to fight for their lives, honestly, because they were threatened. So if you do not know these things and you did not know this history, then I feel like, you know, it's a problem there. It's not professional at all. So I had to let her know that. And it's been 50 plus years since Tommy Smith and John Carlos, you know, took that podium in 1968 at the Mexico City Games. Do you feel that anything has changed, that there has been progress, or do you feel we're, we're still back in 1968, that we're still living through effectively the, the, the civil rights movement? Yeah, I feel like nothing has changed. And I only feel like that because, um, you know, back in the day, they were fighting for laws, right? And so I feel like today we're fighting for these laws that were put in place to protect us and they still haven't been protecting us. They just found different ways to go around these laws. So I feel like we're we're basically in the same boat because why create a law that they're not going to uphold? So yeah, it's the same. Nothing has changed at all. So you compete in track and field uh, and specifically in weight and hammer throws. What What is that? So the hammer throw is a track and field event. It's a ball on a string, basically, and you just wrap it around your head and you turn in a circle and you try to throw it as far as you can. That's the and best way did, I can describe it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to go and Google some videos. Yeah. To see what that is. So so how does one specifically train for that event? Um basically it's just you just have to at least throw, throw the implement. Uh, five times a week, uh, you throw, so there's different types of weights. Um, so you, you have a competition weight that is four kilograms. And then in order to train for that four kilograms, you can throw a little bit heavier. So that the four kilograms seems lighter, or you can train a little bit lighter so that the four kilograms can go at a faster speed. So you throw about five times a week. Uh, you want to maintain, you know, some type of condition. So you definitely want to lift at least twice a week and uh, you just put in reps, repetitions. <laughs> so how did you come to f- to find this, this sport? I mean, this competition, how did you know that you would ultimately become, you know, a 2016 U.S. team, uh, you know, Olympic athlete at the Rio Olympics and then, you know, breaking this record or, you know, setting this record in 2018? How did you come to this sport? Um, I think I definitely think the sport chose me because um I didn't even like track and field. Um, I started I got into track and field when I was a sophomore in high school, but I did not throw. I was a sprinter and a jumper. So um, and basketball definitely was my number one sport. You know, I could have sworn I was going to go to the WNBA. If you asked me when I was twelve years old, I would say I would be a you know a WNBA All American, you know, All Star. So um. I started track and field when I was a sophomore, and then I actually got a scholarship to jump, to be a triple jumper. Hmm. So when I went off to college, um, one of the coaches who saw me said, and he was the throws coach, 
he said, you remind me of a thrower that I used to coach. And I was just like, oh, really? That's awkward because I'm a jumper. So he was just like, you, you should try the hammer throw. You should try it. And I was just like, no, because I'm not big. I'm not really strong. You know, I've never thrown before. So it's probably not for me. So he kept bugging me, kept bugging me, kept bugging me. And then he bugged my coach. He bugged the man who recruited me. So the man who recruited me was just like, yeah, you know, she can probably try it, see if she likes it. And then they both went to my high school coach, my high school track and field coach, and said, convince Gwen to try the hammer. So I had, it was three against one. You know, everybody was just gunning for me to try this event. And so I broke down and I cried and I was like, I don't want to do it. They was just like, just try it. Just give it two months, two months. So I gave it three months. And in three months, I almost made the junior Olympic team. Literally went from three, you know, zero to three months. So I caught, I caught onto it naturally. And uh, I just went from there. So you, you start this journey of yours in high school to now where, you know, your name is being spoken alongside Colin Kaepernick. Um, we're now in this moment after George Floyd and understand and America beginning to realize more and more how much of these issues impact everyday life. You grew up in St. Louis. Uh, St. Louis uh, is a city that is not very well known for its diversity uh, and has dealt with issues on racism. What did that upbringing teach you and kind of prepare you for this moment? I feel like my upbringing definitely taught me how to be resilient and to not accept things just because it's the quote unquote way it is. Um, I do. I do remember uh, issues and instances that happened in my life that made me question, you know, why? Why is it? Why is this acceptable or why are things this way? You know, my uncle used to come, I used to live, uh, I grew up with my grandmother and she raised like 13 of us in one household. And there was a lot of, a lot of males, a lot of older males. And they used to hang out all the time at the parks and walk up the streets and, you know, just have fun being kids. And they used to always come in and used to cry to my grandmother and tell her that they were being harassed by the police officers. And I really never understood that. But I, I remember I asked my grandmother, I was just like, why is it okay that, you know, policemen can just walk up and harass somebody or tell them to go home or tell them that they can't be walking on the streets. Like, why is it that that's okay? And, you know, I, of course I never got the answer cause I was a kid and my granny, you know, she's just like old school. That's just the way it is. And I used to always just think to myself, but why? So growing up in that environment allowed me to see things for what it really was and to say, okay, if this is the way it is, if no one can answer why it's this way, then it shouldn't be this way. You know, it taught me 100% resilience and it taught me to stand up for anything because you cannot accept just everything in this world. It doesn't make sense to. So you say that, um, and I'm quoting you here, athlete sports careers are very short compared to their life. Mm -hmm. Most never win a medal. I myself, as a hammer thrower, estimate about 0.01% know it's an Olympic event. Mm -hmm. Why would you risk so much in taking that, and I say a social stance, mm -hmm. on the podium knowing that at that point, America was not ready to have this conversation and everything that you had seen going on with Colin Kaepernick? I mean, did you know, did you know what you were about to step into? 
I honestly didn't know, but I feel like I had to do something because I felt it in my soul. Like I was not at peace with myself or with anything, honestly, in my life until I made that stance. Until I raised my fist in the air, I was not at peace with myself because I know that some I knew that something has had to be done and said. I could, you know, I couldn't sleep at night. I was restless. I had seen so many things and experienced so many things that I was fed up. Um, I feel like somebody has to be or make the sacrifice. Because if no one makes the sacrifice, then how does this the conversation begin, right? So the conversation begun when me and race made the sacrifice. The conversation begun when Colin Kaepernick made the sacrifice. So now it's, it's just turning over. Now all of these things that we've already spoke about and stood up for are coming to light. They're, they're in our face more than ever. And now you see the trickle effect where more people are speaking out. When I took my stance, no track and, no track and field, USA track and field athlete said anything. They probably spoke to me privately, but they didn't say anything publicly. Now you see Olympic champions, world champions, Olympic medalists saying, if this doesn't change, I will protest. You see football players saying, okay, well, they're, they're making videos. They're making, they're putting up, they're putting up statements. They're making um, athletes, you know, athlete groups to, to fight for these things. So somebody has to be that person. And I just decided that it should be me. Why not me? I've lived it for so long. So why not? So you even issued a, a, a public and open letter mm-hmm. um, talking about the tragic killing of George Floyd and, and saying that, you know, between politics and the Tokyo Olympics, like what's the cost? What do you think that is the cost of politics not kind of trying to be excluded from the Tokyo Olympics with this rule 50 um, and, and this, you know, agreement that athletes will not do any political protests. Is this the type of thing where you might question whether or not you would participate in the 2020 Olympics now 2021 Olympics? You know, that's a really good question. Um, and I feel like every athlete right now um, is battling with that, especially me. Because I feel like I've sacrificed so much, as I said before, to get here. So I feel like for me, if I make the team, when I make the team and when I stand on the podium, I feel like my medal is worth it. I feel like, you know, me taking another stance and me speaking out on the injustices of my people is worth it. Um, I believe if you believe in something, you should do anything at any cost. It shouldn't the cost and an amount shouldn't matter. I feel like it's imperative that you that you just act. Because I've lost everything already. And that wasn't even Olympic Games. That was just the Pan American Games. Do you think that fans will now join in the stands at sporting events and follow suit? Follow what? what the players have been doing in the field now fans will do in the stands? Um, it depends. I feel like it, it depends on who the fans are. Um, I definitely believe for the NFL, you know, majority of the fans are white. 
and um, you know, white people have privilege, and I'd like to keep that privilege. So some of most of the fans, I believe, won't agree with um, what the players want to do because they can't, they don't understand. You know, you have eighty percent black athletes playing and fighting for their lives, and you know, taking stances, and you have, you know, a hundred percent of the the fans being white and privileged people who definitely don't understand. So I think that would be that wouldn't you know. They wouldn't be on the same page. But as far as track and field, I feel like because our fans genuinely like the sport, because our sport, you know, is an amateur sport in America, I feel like our fans will get on board and support us and probably take stances too. So where do things stand right now between you and the IOC and the USOC? Um, Right now, I'm probably public enemy number one. <laughs> uh but definitely, um, I mean, I feel like the athletes group that Sarah has spoken of, they're prepared to fight and they're prepared to go against the IOC and challenge their rules uh, because a lot of different federations and major events have gotten on board. Uh, the Commonwealth Games has said that they would not penalize athletes for taking a stance on the podium. Um, the, I, the IAAF has taken it, um, made that statement as well. So I feel like um, it's the IOC versus everybody. And um, I'm not, I don't, I don't think I'm in, I know I'm not in good terms with the IOC, but uh, the USOPC, you know, I'm just taking a step back and I just want to see action. Do you feel that you're owed an apology or or what do you believe that you're owed? Um, I definitely feel like I'm owed more than an apology. Will I get that? I got the apology, but will I get what I'm owed? Uh, absolutely not. Because I think that's honestly, that's just the way things are uh, when people don't understand you and when they don't support you and you explain to them how their actions have affected you. Most times if they don't understand, they don't care. They don't want to make it right. You know, I feel like apologizing is not enough to make any situation right. Uh, but I mean, I can't, I can't really tell you what I'm old. I just know I'm old more than an apology. And, but Sarah Hirschland, she did, she did apologize to the best that she could. But like I said, I, I want to see action. That'd be, that'd be enough for me. Let's see what happens with these rules pertaining to the IOC. Let's just see. Gwen Berry, thanks for being on. Thank you for having me. To read Gwen's open letter, be sure to check out our show notes. As you've heard, Colin Kaepernick hasn't been the only person to protest police brutality and racism. A women's soccer team at the University of Washington also took a knee. And one thing became very clear. Their coach, who is a white woman, supported it, despite criticism from boosters and alumni. Leslie Gallimore recently retired after 26 seasons as head coach, amassing 270 games and making 15 NCAA tournament appearances. So Leslie, we're, we're going to get right into it. We've, we've seen the amount of protests that have been happening around the country. We've seen how athletes have been really getting involved in, in protests, but you know, you were kind of one of the, the early kind of teams to kind of take a knee where, you know, they were raising awareness for social justice and inequality. As a coach, what did you think your role was in 
allowing your players and and I don't even know if that's the right thing to say uh to take to take a knee and to have that uh moment of kind of social awareness uh during a, a game on the field. Yeah, I thought that uh allowing was is is not the term I would use either. But the 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 year that my team took a knee, um they they did come to me and I I could tell that something was um obviously there were things that were off in the world um, and becoming more pronounced. I mean, I think things have always been off in the world, but things were becoming very public and Colin Kaepernick taking a knee and the increased um, awareness around black lives matter, the increasing awareness around the frequency with which black children were being killed. uh, Black men were being killed. Black people were being killed was starting to escalate. uh, And, you know, kind of one after the other, it just seemed like there was a flurry there for a while that was um, very public. Uh, and again, that's not to dismiss the fact that I'm sure there are deaths that we never hear about. <laughs> so, um, so I had a team uh, at the time who were clearly probably one of the most diverse teams I'd coached up to that point. And I, I get this question asked a lot, and I don't want to divert from the current question you're asking, but you know, my teams were increasingly becoming more diverse than they'd been in my early career as a coach and a lot having to do with girls of color, not really playing soccer as much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, and then, you know, an, an increased awareness on my part as, as to how my team um, was compiled and comprised. And, uh, and so I had a very uh, active, socially active and aware group. And I think, the fact that they had gotten to this point in the way our team was was composed is that they looked around and they had a there was started to be a little bit more of a comfort level that there were people that looked like them and people not from the same background but from different backgrounds was sort of the same feeling like you know there was a little bit more power in numbers amongst themselves and and that you know we had biracial kids black white um, Asian Americans Asian black mix uh, Hawaiian. Uh, Polynesian descent, uh, Filipina, et cetera. And, you know, so these, these women, young women were looking around at each other and I think they started to have um, more conversations around social issues, but hard ones. I mean, they weren't like openly discussing things, but you could tell that things were being discussed in the background more. And this was a team who um, taught me a lot and I was happy to know that they felt comfortable enough coming to me. So as a coach, you always want to have relationships that are built around trust and that they trusted that asking me the question about kneeling would be met with an open mind, I think, looking back. And so I, you know, I treasure the fact that they were comfortable enough to ask me. And I said, of course you can. Um, I appreciate you asking me. And whether you would have asked me or not, I would have respected your choice to but in an intercollegiate setting, what you need to know is if you kneel, people will be watching and people will ask you why. And my only request of you is that you can articulate that in a meaningful and intelligent way when asked. And aside from that, go for it. Like <laughs> you, you make your choice. And I also said, as much as you want, um, to be respected for your choice. And as much as I respect for your, you for your choice, there has to be a mutual respect amongst the team for those that choose not to kneel. And 
and that's and that's kind of how it went. And I would I would sometimes I would look because of where I stood during the national anthem, and sometimes I wouldn't look, or sometimes I'd see a picture later, uh, and um, I would you know just to see who was and who wasn't, just out of my own curiosity, not from a judgmental standpoint at all, just to just to see and and have a little bit more insight into who felt strongly enough to do it and who felt, you know, the courage to do it. And, but they all did have their hands on each other's shoulders, whether they were kneeling or not. And so I could tell they were as a a team together on it. They knew that we, we supported them. And looking back, I feel like, like I'm, I'm a little bit angry at myself, but you know, the number of aha moments I've had over the last three weeks in particular has been like, you know, you feel at the time you're being empathetic and, and sympathetic and, you know, kind of getting it as a white person and so far from it <laughs> compared to now. And so, you know, can't go backwards. You can only go forwards. And so now I look at that time and I'm, I'm happy to have had the experience with them and to have watched them, but it's more, you know, selfishly what I continue to learn based on, on those times is important. Uh, I probably, God, if I look back, you're in the middle of your competitive season. And I I had individual conversations with, with student athletes uh, who wanted to talk about it, who I could tell were struggling around it immensely. Some of them mightily, I mean, mightily. And it was, it was so much more important to them than playing soccer. And I could tell. So with those individuals, I had conversations. I think now I would be, I don't think I could go back and do it, but I, I and I, I think as those years passed on, and even in my last couple of years, obviously there'd been more incidents since then and, um, and our team remained and, and was becoming, you know, it was a diverse group of, of players. And um, I would, I would say things, I wouldn't let things, if something came up in the news, I wouldn't let it just go without mentioning it. I'd say, Hey, I know I can't even pretend to know what it feels like right now in this moment to be a person of color, but just know that um, I know you're probably feeling something. And if you, if you need to talk, happy to talk, you should talk to each other, to someone because it's, it's apparent it's having some kind of effect. And um, I, I just used to, you know, put it out there so that they knew that I wasn't just clueless that there were things going on in the world that, that were having an effect on them and on me. Uh, so I, I look back and I, I just think that more conversations needed to happen, figuring out, uh, how to listen more from a white per- person's perspective needed to be a bigger part of the discussion. Uh, and yeah, I just, I, I look back and I think that, I don't think we missed an opportunity, but I think that opportunity has come to a head now. And I see a lot of the players from that team. I see a lot of my former student athletes and what they're doing and what their action steps are and how they're leaning on one another and how they're able to be allies with each other is, uh, you know, it's, it's heartwarming. And the sport of soccer has not been known necessarily for its diversity. And at the same time too, you are running a program in a state that also was not known for its diversity. Mm-mm, so nope. how, how did you come to build uh, a team that was probably more <laughs> reflective of the world than it was of Oregon and not saying the university as a, as a white woman 
in, in a leadership position. Was that an intentional thing? You know, I look back on that and I don't, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but I, you know, I, I grew up, um, playing with predominantly white children and I, I went to college playing with predominantly white women. Again, more having to do with soccer than where I went to school. I went to school at Berkeley in the eighties and, um, the Cal campus is much more diverse than the other two places I've coached, which were San Diego state and, um, the university of Washington. I was at San Diego state before I came to Washington and it was during the Rodney King riots and the riots spread and civil unrest, so to speak, uh, spread towards San Diego. And I remember at the time putting a lot of thought into that. Um, my, my, I grew up, my mom always working in areas that were way more diverse than where we lived. And so I spent a lot of time going to activities in areas where I was around more children of color. Uh, my mom used to put me into YMCA camp in Gardena, California, which is where she worked. And, um, there was way more of a cross section of humanity in those, those YMCA trips than I experienced in my own schools and at home, um, which I found fascinating at the time I was, you know, an elementary school kid. And so, and I loved it. I, I loved hearing different than where I was just different stories, et cetera. So it, it's always been something to me that I wouldn't say it's always been something that's important to me. I just think naturally as soccer in this country has started to, girls soccer in particular, it's way different than boys soccer, uh, has, has become a little bit more diverse. It's still nowhere where it needs to be, but there are more children of color playing that it just was, it was very natural to me to want our team at a big public university to be more reflective of society overall and the world overall than just of the place we live and the school we were at. Um, and, and I don't know that I was like, oh, it's really important to me. I just think it was, it just was natural for it to to go that way. And I became much more aware of one or two um, Hispanic players, uh, Latinas, or one or two black women, or a couple of biracial players being on a team and, and putting myself in their shoes and looking around and going, God, and, and some of them came from club soccer where they, they never saw one other, they never ever played with one other person that looked like them. And in the academic environment at the university level, especially, I think you owe it to people to put them in a place where it looks more like the world than it, than where they've been. Um, so I think it was something that, that came naturally to me to want to put them in an environment where they felt comfortable, they felt seen, they felt like they weren't just on their own. Um, yeah, I think that's the best way I can describe it. In an interview, Havana McElvane uh, talked about, you know, that moment when you said to the team or said to her, if you want to kneel, you can. And she said, quote, in that moment, she really knew me better than myself. She enabled me to be in solidarity with a movement I cared about. And that was always really powerful for me. What role does a coach play in the development of, of these young adults, of these young adult women and coming into this world right now that, you know, as we were discussing before the interview has been, you know, digital and social media is native to them. Their, their image is, you know, we could talk about name, image, and likeness um, about the NCAA in another conversation, but that their images <laughs> are being used yes. um, across platforms in ways that they probably don't even know. 
how important is it that that these that these young adults begin to find their voice and and what is your role in helping them find their voice beyond uh, well, the field well if you're talking about me personally that's one thing if you're talking about you i think you started the question with a coach's role so i'll i'll, I'll address the coach's role and then I'll, I'll address what i think my role is now but as a coach um your role is i tell people this all the time um in the profession when I'm asked to speak or whenever I have a platform that, and I've always felt this way, that your role is larger than you'll ever know. Uh, and it's, it is such a huge responsibility and, uh, you're trusted, um, with their feelings. You're trusted with their pathway. You're trusted with your guidance that you give them. Um, there's just a huge amount of trust placed and responsibility placed on the coaches of a shoulder, uh, shoulders of a coach. And, <clears throat> Just when you think you're really nailing it, <laughs> just when you think you're you're hitting your stride and you you know the the best advice to dole out and you know how to listen and um, and counsel and uh, support and provide, you know you make one misstep and it all comes crumbling down. At least in your own head, if you're paying attention and if you if you care about it as as much as you should and as much as I did, uh, there were so many different humbling experiences that I had that I can't even name them where I felt like oof, you know, punch to the gut, even with Havana, even with some of my, my student athletes during that time that I thought I was, I was dialed in and then I would say something and you could just tell. And, and again, it wasn't, um, overt or it wasn't intentional, but you know, when you're a, a white person, there's things that you're always going to say and you have to own them that are either micro aggressively racist or whatever you want to put a name on You just, you don't know. And that's the, that's the best thing is that I, I think I, I could hit those moments where, again, where I felt like oh, I'm doing all these things right. And then I would do the wrong thing, um, not with ill intention, but I would have to be able to take it. I'd have to be. And that was the good news is I had young women around me that we had such a great mutual trust that they would be able to tell me, mm, Leslie, no. And I'd be like, okay, yep. Yep. I get it. Whatever it was. And so I, I think you, you have to be willing as a coach to understand how huge your role is and how much people are looking and listening and watching and, uh, your actions, um, you know, all of it. And I think a coach's role today is, you know, and I, I think what my role is now too, is to, to help people through that and just say, listen, you don't have all the answers. Don't pretend to. You have to show up um, and and see kids and listen to kids and just be willing to be wrong, <laughs> hmm. you know, and uh, especially as a white coach coaching black student athletes, you have to be willing to learn from them. Uh, and and it's, it's not so much, I think it is partially following their lead, but it's also doing it with... Um, sort of a genuineness that is still you. You can't just follow blindly and pretend like, okay, I'm doing the right things. I'm saying the right things. I'm reposting the right things. I'm, I'm listening to what she's saying. This is okay for me because there's a lot of things that, that even, you know, you mentioned Havana McElvain, there's things that Havana will say that um, I can't just inherently, I just agree with, I have to study them, listen to her. And then it might not be my place to repeat it. You know, hmm. I, I, I can't just, you know, mimic what she's saying. My, my experience isn't the same as her experience. And I have to be not willing necessarily to disagree with her, but I, I have to be willing to filter 
what's her story and what's my version of, of, you know, what's happening and, and have intellectual conversations around what that looks like. And, um, and I, I think there's times where white people in athletics sort of take up the cause of black people. <laughs> and I, that right there, that sentence, it makes me cringe a little bit. Take up the cause, like it's taking something from them. <laughs> right. And, and I just think that's wrong. I, 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 I feel like we have just completely lost the plot when it comes to what we're supposed to be controlling and what we're just supposed to be watching and let happen and let be theirs. And I, I get caught in this all the time where it's a natural instinct to behave one way and you have no idea what that's making the person. And sometimes they don't know. They're so used to it that they just go along with it. And and for that, I feel terrible. Like I just, that, that a whole, you know, race of people have been, socialized to have to behave a certain way because it's the only way they can get through. And that's what has to change. Has anyone ever said to you, Leslie, you're doing it all wrong. You're allowing these kids to, you know, and I use the word kids in quotes, right? But, the, mm -hmm. you know, you're allowing these kids to take a knee and, you know, be themselves and, and your job should be this. Yes. Yeah. And not doing it all wrong, but definitely criticized. Um, you know, and, and if I were to, to, I look back at this with my own job and the number of um, rich, you know, affluent white people that have controlled what I've had to do or not, ha you know, been allowed to do in my time as an intercollegiate soccer coach. I, I think back and I, I cringe a little bit, like, you know, people that had a power over me and what I could and couldn't do that I wasn't even aware of at the time and I didn't even realize was something that was maybe affecting my decisions. And a lot of time to have to do when I mention that with donors um, and people that even behind the scenes that you don't know are probably having an effect on what you are and aren't allowed to do or say, even though you know it's the difference between what's right and what's wrong and what you would normally do if you could. Um, but yeah, there's definitely people who the age old, you know, comment about disrespecting the flag and yada, yada, yada. And the, the interesting thing at the time of this kneeling was my son was serving in the United States Marine Corps and my kids, my kids, my student athletes were extremely cognizant of that. And, but at the same time, I, I just, it, again, the assumptions that people would make about me <laughs> that your son's in the military, how could you? And I'm like, how couldn't I? I felt the exact opposite. You know, he's fighting for every citizen of our country. He's serving um, so that everyone can be free. And how hypocritical of, of anyone to tell me that, you know, that this would be something that was blasphemous to the, <laughs> to our flag. And I just, you know, it, it just didn't fly. Like, I, I think people are just parrots a lot of the time they say things that they think make sense when they don't really put any thought into it at all so yeah there was there were people that were critical uh, I think I'd been around uh, in the community of Seattle and and around the University of Washington long enough to know um, which voices to listen to and which ones to just kind of filter out but I also think people had enough respect for me and for the way that my associate head coach and I ran our program to, to understand that um, that we knew what we were doing and that, that, or they were too afraid to approach us and say something right to our faces. So it was one of the two, they were either afraid of us or 
they trusted that we probably put some thought into things. So, um, yeah, you know, you're never going to have in anything. And, you know, when you have a public position, like a coach in an athletic department, as big as the one at university of Washington, you're always going to have people that are throwing darts at you and willing to criticize now more often behind a screen or a comment on the internet, as opposed to your face. But, um, that's not something that I, you know, wasn't used to. So I was, I was prepared for it and I wasn't afraid about it. Did you ever expect that, uh, women's soccer would become so popular, especially in the last couple of years and, and, and with women's, uh, soccer, the U S women's soccer team in particular for being vocal and being on the record and, and asking for what men have been getting all along, uh, and now this week we're seeing that, you know, U.S. women's soccer is calling for an immediate repeal of the Federation's anthem policy, requiring mm-hmm. players to stand respect, respectfully. I mean, where does where do you think this all stands now? What 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 can women in soccer right now be able to do that they haven't been able to do before? Yeah, it's been it's been a crazy ride. I was you know, I was a player sort of at the beginning of the the soccer evolution in this country for girls and for women in the late 70s and early 80s. And the sport became more and more popular. My associate head coach played on the first World Cup team in 1991. And I played in that pool of players. And so that generation of of my peers um, have certainly uh, put their necks out there, put their blood, sweat and tears on the field to, to be able to just elevate the sport. And in 99, when they won the World Cup here on U.S. soil uh, for the second time, and they, you know, they showed that they could fill up stadiums. So just the platform of being a female and being able to be, be popular as an athlete and to make, make money and to be in advertisements and all that kind of stuff, that was um, something that certainly opened my eyes to what the sport could become and what we'd all worked really hard for it to become. I would say in 2000, flash forward, we hadn't won a World Cup. There was a lot of, not turmoil, but there was within the team and just the U.S. trying to win it again. And it took them from uh, from 1999 to 2015 to win it again uh, for the third time. And uh, our goalkeeper from the University of Washington, Hope Solo, was on the team. Hope obviously is, you know, has has been at times a, a kind of a polarizing figure. She's certainly been outspoken. Uh, she's someone who has her own, you know, single lawsuit against the Federation. Uh, you know, when she was first speaking out, it wasn't that popular Her some of the things in her personal life that happened detracted from it. But at the same time, she was the one that was willing to, again, um, say something and everyone else kind of sit back and, and let her take the, the bullets for it, so to speak, you know, flash forward another four years and we went back to back world cups in, in 2019. And I was in France for the month watching and Megan Rapinoe obviously plays on the professional team here in Seattle. I've known her since she was younger. She played at the university of Portland uh, who we played every year. And, uh, and so it, it's just been this evolution of them becoming a stronger and stronger voice. And, you know, Jill Ellis, the coach of that team for the last two world cups, and she's, you know, the FIFA world <clears throat> coach of the year, and uh, you have to credit her for also evolving. She's one of my longtime colleagues at UCLA. She was there for eight years. And you, you look at kind of how she, as a coach, supported her team in their evolution to speak out more about LBGQT rights, about equal pay, about um, anything deemed as being political, any kind of equality, uh, you know, she, she let them be them and they performed a lot better for it as a unit. And so, you know, 
Dr. Harry Edwards would always say, you know, <laughs> sport recapitulates society and sport is a microcosm of society. And it, it certainly in the women's national team uh, example has been so true to watch. And, uh, you know, so I, I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it. I'm so proud to have had even a, a teeny tiny bit to do with anything that our U.S. women's national team has been able to accomplish over the last um, several decades on the field, off the field. And when you were in France last summer, my, my associate head coach, Amy Griffin, said it best. She's like, you know, when we were in France, it became so much less about the U.S. winning as all of the other teams. And you could feel it when you were there. France's team as the host nation, when they lost to the U.S. in the quarterfinals, they were clearly devastated because they wanted to move on. But they were looking at us as leaders, as, okay, these women are doing it right. Look at how comfortable they are speaking out. Look at how comfortable they are, they are sticking up for what they believe in. Look at how, and it's, it's you know, this, this global sort of uprising for equality has been, it's been so inspiring to watch. And I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say our sport, you know, I, I can't say because I'm sort of in, on the inside, but it, it seems as though the sport of women's soccer is a little bit on the leading edge when it comes to that uh, as being leaders and speaking out against um, things that they see as unjust. Leslie Gallimore, former head coach of the University of Washington's women's soccer team from 1994 to 2019. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much, Andrew. I appreciate you having me. Well, that'll do it for this episode of The Huddle. The Huddle is a production of the Global Sport Institute and Global Sport Matters at ASU. If you have a question, comment, hey, find us on Twitter. We are at Global Sport MTRS. That's Global Sport MTRS. And be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our show on whatever podcast platform you listen to. Until next time, I'm Andrew Ramsamy. So long.